name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. As Jimmy said, this morning uh, is going to be a different experience for all of you. Um, if you're new to the service on the live stream or if you're new here this morning, as I said, I'm not the normal preacher, but I do believe that I still have some encouraging things to bring this morning. Um, before we get started, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Lord Jesus, come now, Lord. Come be with us. Come be with me. God, I just thank you for how good you are to us and how gracious you are, Lord. You have given us the best gift of all, yourself, through the means of Christ paying for it, winning us back to you on the cross, Lord. We're so grateful for the gospel truth that's affected our lives and has changed us, Lord. Lord, we pray now that you would work in us and help us to be built up, encouraged to go and share this same message with all people, with people here in our local sphere, with people to the ends of the earth, Lord. Lord, would you work in us this morning? Would you work in me, Lord? Let everything that be said be your words, not mine. If it's not yours, Lord, would you let it not be said? Lord, would, it, would you let all of us be encouraged this morning from the story that's here before? Lift us up and let you be glorified from it. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, I'm going to be giving a biography of a man named John G. Patton, who was a missionary to the New Hebrides. Uh, the information I got for this biography is all in this one book. My book looks a little bit different than what you would see online, but it's an autobiography by John G. Patton himself, and it's titled John G. Patton, Missionary to the New Hebrides. A lot of what I'm going to be sharing this morning is just kind of spread out of the whole story. If you want to fill in the gaps, this is a really, really good read, and I encourage you to read it. John G. Patton was a good writer, and it's just, it's a really good read. So it's easy to find. It's about $25 on, on the internet. Um, so I encourage you to buy it. Um, if you hear me speaking in older English this morning, which I promise it won't be too challenging, but if you hear me speaking in older English, I'm reading straight from this book, and much of the talk that I'm going to be giving this morning is simply just reading straight from this book. So there are three points that I want to drive in this morning as you listen. So here they are. Point number one, parent with a missional perspective. Number two, be faithful to the call to missions. And number three, have courage and persevere in serving Jesus. The New Hebrides are a set of 11 main islands and many smaller ones that lay in the Pacific Ocean. Um, there should be a map that can be put up. So if you look a little west of Fiji, a little east of Australia, and just south of the Solomon Islands, you will find the New Hebrides. As far as we know, for the first 18 centuries after Christ, there was no Christian influence on these islands. None. Just think of that for a second. There's no Christian influence for 1,800 years at this place. The Christian cause on these specific islands began in 1839 when two men named John Williams and his companion James Harris, may, may, some of you may have known those names, but those two men landed on Aromanga on the 30th November and Patton wrote, 
alas, within a few minutes of their touching land, and parents, I warn you a little bit of this is going to be a little bit graphic. The two men were clubbed to death, and the savages proceeded to cook and feast upon their bodies. Thus were the New Hebrides baptized with the blood of martyrs, and Christ thereby told the whole Christian world that he claimed these islands as his own. His cross must yet be lifted up, where the blood of saints has been poured forth in his name. The poor heathen knew not that they had slain their best friends, but tears and prayers ascended from them, from all Christian souls, wherever the story of the martyrdom on Aramanga was read or heard. It was stories like that of those two men that lit a passion in John Patton's heart for the lost in the New Hebrides, that they might come to know Jesus and worship at the Savior's feet. John Gibson Patton was born on May 24th, 1824, in the south of Scotland to James and Janet Patton in a cottage on a farm near Dumfries. John was the eldest of 11 children, of whom there were five sons and six daughters. At the age of five, his family moved to a new village called Forthwald, where his parents resided for the rest of their life. Patton had humble beginnings, but they were good ones. Patton attended a village school where he learned a list of subjects. Patton had a passion for his studies and was a capable student, and at the age of 11, he started his father's trade. Children, listen to this when you want to complain next time. They worked from 6 in the morning till 10 at night, with an hour at dinner time and a half hour at breakfast and again at supper. During these spare moments, Patton said, I devoutly spent on my books, chiefly in the rudiments of Latin and Greek. He's 11 when he's doing this, by the way. For I had given my soul to God and was resolved to aim at being a missionary of the cross or a minister of the gospel. Even at such a young age and in the midst of a life of hard work, Patton was committed to loving Jesus. Point number one, parent with a missional perspective. His father was a stocking manufacturer, his mother a homemaker. They were both loving, devoted parents who had a massive impact on the person of John G. Patton. John described his mother Janet as being a bright-hearted, high-spirited, patient, toiling, and altogether heroic little woman who for about 43 years made and kept such a wholesome, independent, God-fearing, and self-reliant life for her family of five sons and six daughters. As constrains me, when I look back on it now, in light of all I have since seen and known of others far differently situated, almost to worship her memory. His mother was a remarkable woman. However, the greatest impact was made by Patton's father, James. Now, before I go further, please know that I know God had the chief influence on Patton's life. It was God, through his means and his working, that made John G. Patton the man he was. But a large way that he did that was through the work of his father, James Patton, and giving him such a wonderful father. And I want to be a daddy like James Patton was to John. So parents, please listen closely and be inspired and challenged to be a parent like this, especially if you still have young kids. Their home had a small closet in the middle of it, and his father would go to this room every day, three times a day, after every meal, every day. He would pour out his heart for his children, his church, and the lost. 
Haddon wrote of this occurrence every day and said, We learned to tiptoe past that closet so as to not disturb that holy place. Haddon was greatly influenced by these prayers and said of his father, He walked with God, why may not I? His father also led his family daily in the mornings and evenings in spiritual worship and prayer. He wrote of these occurrences, None of us can remember that any day passed unhallowed thus. No hurry for market, no rush to business, no arrival of friends or guests, no trouble or sorrow, no joy or excitement ever prevented, at least our kneeling around the family altar where the high priest led our prayers to God and offered himself and his children there. My father had a strong desire to be a minister of the gospel, but when he finally saw that God's will had marked out for him another lot, he reconciled himself by entering with his own soul in this solemn vow, that if God gave him sons, he would consecrate them unreservedly to the ministry of the cross. As Patton grew older, his father's influence only grew stronger. Haddon's desire to become a missionary also grew stronger, and this was largely due to his father's influence. On another occasion, he wrote during his teen years, saying, How much my father's prayers at this time impressed me, I can never explain, nor could any stranger understand. When on his knees, and all of us kneeling around him, picture that scene, in family worship, he poured out his whole soul with tears for the conversion of the heathen world to the service of Jesus, and for every personal and domestic need. We all felt as if in the presence of the living Savior and learned to know and love him as our divine friend. As we rose from our knees, I used to look at the light on my father's face and wish I were like him in spirit, hoping that in answer to his prayers, I might be privileged and prepared to carry the blessed gospel to some portion of the heathen world. See a practice you could implement, parents, dads? Patton continued to work on his education, for having a strong education was somewhat of a requirement in those days, as well as theological training in order to be a missionary. So he was diligent and faithful in his studies. He accepted an opportunity at about 20 years old to study at a seminary in Glasgow, and this this required him to leave his home for at least some time. Now picture it, he wasn't sure he was ever going to be able to return home and see his parents. This is 20 years old when this is happening. It was a long journey to Glasgow, and the first 40 miles in particular had to be walked. His father set out to accompany him for the first leg of this journey. This will be the last portion I read of his father. Listen to this. My dear father walked with me the first six miles of the way. His counsel and tears and heavenly conversation on that parting journey are fresh in my heart as if it had been but yesterday. He's an old man writing this. And tears are on my cheek as freely now as then whenever memory steals me away to the scene. For the last half mile or so, we walked together in almost unbroken silence. My father, as often was his custom, carrying hat in hand while his long flowing hair then yellow, but now in later years, white as snow, streamed like a girl's down his shoulders. His lips kept moving in silent prayers for me, and his tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks for which all speech was vain. 
We halted on reaching that apporting part in place. He grasped my hand and firmly for a minute in silence, and then solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer, and in tears we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could, and when about to turn a corner in the road where he was to lose sight of me, I looked back and saw him still standing with head uncovered where I had left him, gazing after me. Waving my hat in adieu, I rounded the corner and out of sight in an instant, but my heart was too full and too sore to carry me further, so I darted into the side of the road and wept for a time. Then, rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he yet stood where I had left him, and just at that moment I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out for me. He did not see me, and after a while he gazed eagerly in my direction, then he got down, set his face toward home, and began to return, his head still uncovered, and his heart, I felt sure, still rising in prayers for me. I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze, and then hastening on my way, bowed deeply and oft by the help of God to live and act in such a way so as to never grieve or dishonor such a father and mother as he had given me. You may say to yourself, I'm not called to missions. And to that I say to you, do you have children? Do you have influence on children? Do you have grandchildren? You all do. To that I say, will you not offer yourself up to them as James and Janet Patton did and watch what God does through that work? You might not be called to serve on the mission field, but I cannot see why you would not want to be like James Patton. I can't see why you wouldn't want to have the love for Jesus that he had. And then may it be that God takes that small seed and plants it in the lives of your children and uses it to grow a love for Jesus in the lives of people around the whole world. So I'm standing here not as somebody like James Patton, but I'm saying I want to be like that. And will you make it your aim along with me to be like that? Point number two. Be faithful to the call to missions. While proceeding on with his education, Patton was also given an opportunity to serve as agent for the Glasgow City Mission, a city in Scotland, of where he served for many years. He was given a district to serve and minister in, so you could say he was somewhat of a local missionary or evangelist. The district he had been given had been neglected for a long time, and it was degraded. And it proved a difficult task in Patton's first year. This, this is why he's still in seminary. He spent four hours daily visiting from house to house. He called upon them to attend worship and instruction, trying to encourage them to do so. They met on the Sabbath day and held an evangelistic service in a hayloft. After a year of performing these activities, there were only six or seven non-churchgoers, about 10 to 20 people in all. So the directors of the mission, they considered giving it up. They considered just moving Patton from that district and just putting him in another one. Nothing was really happening. But he pleaded with them, just give me six months longer. Six months longer with these people. So they said yes. 
And then more people began to come. Haddon devoted much prayer to this. He asked God relentlessly to bless this ministry and work tirelessly to see it grow, and that it did. More people came, and as they came, they got involved, and as they got involved, they asked more people to come, and it just was a circle that kept going. Now, these were poor people. They did not have much, but they worked together, like in the Church of Acts, to come together and meet each other's needs. Haddon wrote, By God's blessing, the weekly meetings had grown in regular attendance from 10 to 20 people to over 500 people every week. Haddon found much joy in this ministry, and he noted in his later years, when he would return from the mission field, there was scarcely a time where somebody wouldn't come up to him and said, you remember me, right? You remember me, don't you? I was in those classes that you led, those Bible studies that you led, and you taught us in those Glasgow missions. So every time he would come back, people recognized him because his influence was so big. But this was a very successful local mission that Patton had. The fruits were great, and the future looked bright for a lifelong ministry. But that would not be the case. Patton wrote, Happy in my work as I felt, and successful by the blessing of God, yet I continually heard, and chiefly during my last years in the Divinity Hall, the wail of the perishing heathen in the South Seas. And I saw that few were caring for them, while I well knew that many would be ready to take up my work in Calton, in Glasgow, and carry it forward, perhaps with more efficiency than myself. Without revealing the state of mind to any person, this was the supreme subject of my meditation and prayer. And this also led me to enter upon those medical studies in which I purposed taking the full course. But at the close of my thir- third year, an incident occurred which led me at once to offer myself for the foreign mission field. So a system of events made it clear that he was to go on the mission field and leave where he was. But this was not an easy decision. He's leaving a ministry of where he grew it up to over 500 people. And people were really upset at him. They did not want him to go. They were mad at him for going. Why are you leaving this place? They would say. Some also were afraid of him, or afraid of him going, rather. Hadn't had a really good sense of humor to these kinds of things. He wrote... Amongst many who sought to deter me was one old, dear old Christian man whose crowning argument will, always was, the cannibals, they will eat you. You will be eaten by cannibals. At last I replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prosper, this prospect is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our Redeemer. The old gentleman raising his hands in a deprecating attitude left the room, saying, after that, I don't have anything left to say. So like I said, certain events made it clear to him that he was to go to the New Hebrides. And so he made his decision to leave and serve on the mission field. Not long after this, Patton married a woman named Mary Ann Robson. And together they left for the foreign mission field on April 16, 1858, Patton now being 33 years of age. Patton was faithful to the missionary call. So those of you who are called to the missions, will you not be faithful to go? Perhaps you have a good thing going here. Perhaps you have a fruitful ministry. Perhaps you're comfortable. 
But will you not be faithful, as Patton was, to give it all up and be committed to God's plan for your life? Be faithful to the call to missions. Point number three. This is for all of us. Have courage and persevere in serving Jesus. The Patton's journey began, which was their four-and-a-half-month-long boat ride to the other side of the planet. Not a two-day plane and car ride. A four-and-a-half-month-long boat ride. And eventually they would land in the southernmost island of the New Hebrides. There's another map that will be put up um, that kind of shows the layout of the New Hebrides there. Um, eventually they would land in the southernmost island, uh, island of Anidium, which is on the bottom of the map there. This island had already been converted to Jesus and was somewhat kind of like a home base to their mission there. There were several Anidamese teachers there who had already been trained to preach the gospel to their own people. But each, each island spoke its own unique language. So it was, it was very difficult to just jump over to one island. Even if they were native people from one, they didn't know the other native people's language. So it was very difficult to spread the, spread the gospel in these islands. But Patton gathered up supplies, took with him a couple of Anidamese teachers, and accompanied by one more experienced missionary, Dr. English, and they set sail for the island of Tana, which is just north of Anidium, where the Pattons would serve, and he left behind his wife who would join him at a later date. It was a short boat ride, and they landed on the island of Tana in 1858, one island south of where the missionaries Williams and Harris were brutally murdered. And this is fresh. When I started at the beginning, I mentioned they were murdered in 1839. This is just 20 years afterwards. This is not a long gap of time. This is still fresh that you knew these people came to this place that you're going to and were beaten to death and the rest. Tana was an island of decent size with many thousand people living on it. So Patton secured and purchased a site where a house would be built. All the missionary houses in those days were constructed near the shore. They had, they had no concept of the diseases that were caused, but when they would build these houses near the shore, it would just lead to fever, malaria, ague, different things. And they, had, they did not realize that when they were building these houses close to shore, it was just a recipe for death, basically. But nevertheless, they didn't have any clue of these things, so he built his house in such conditions. Patton wrote of his first impressions of the native people on his arrival at Tana. My first impressions drove me, I must confess, to the verge of utter dismay. On beholding these natives in their paint and nakedness and misery, my heart was as full as a pity as a, as full of horror as of pity. Had I given up my much beloved work and dear people in Glasgow with so many delightful associations? to consecrate my life to these degraded creatures? Was it even possible to teach them right from wrong, to Christianize, or to even civilize them? Party after party of armed men going and coming in a state of great excitement, we were informed that war was on foot, but our Vietnamese teachers were told to assure us that the harbor people would act only on the defensive and no one would molest us at our work. One day, two hostile tribes met near our station. High words arose. Old feuds were revived. The inland people withdrew. But the harbor people, false to their promises, flew to arms and rushed past us in pursuit of their enemies. The discharge of muskets in the adjoining bush and the horrid yells of the savages 
soon informed us that they were engaged in deadly fights. Excitement and terror were on every countenance. Armed men rushed about in every direction with feathers in their twisted hair, with faces painted red, black, and white, and some one cheek black, the other red, others the brow white and the chin blue. In fact, any color in any part, the more, de- the more grotesque and savage-looking, the higher the art. Some of the, some of the women ran with their children to places of safety, but even then we saw girls and women on the shore close by chewing sugarcane and chaffering and laughing as if their fathers and brothers were engaged in a country dance instead of a bloody conflict. Next evening, as we sat talking about the people and the dark scenes around us, the quiet of the night was broken by a wild wailing cry from the villages around. Long continued unearthly, we were informed that one of the wounded men carried home from the battle had just died and that they had strangled his widow to death, that her spirit may accompany him to the other world and be his servant there as she had been here. Now their dead bodies were laid side by side, ready to be buried in the sea. Our hearts sank to think of all this happening within earshot and that we knew it not. Every new scene, every fresh incident set more clearly before us the benighted condition and shocking cruelties of these heathen people. And we longed to be able to speak of them, of Jesus, and the love of God. We eagerly tried to pick up the word of their language that we might, in their own tongue, afford to them the knowledge of the true God and of salvation from all these sins through Jesus Christ. So the natives were a totally pagan people. They wore little clothing, if any at all, and were often at war with each other and were very, very violent towards the missionaries. They would call them Missy. They called Patton, Missy Patton. He wrote of their beliefs, saying, The natives, destitute of the knowledge of the true God, are ceaselessly groping after him, if perchance they may find him. Not finding him, and not being able to live with some sort of God. They picture, picture this. You're at your new homeless island, and all of a sudden, the guy you know leaves, you're, you're left with two native teachers, and you're by yourself. No means of escape, no way to get out. Even if you wanted to leave, you couldn't. There's no way. You have no means of getting there. Together, they worked hard to learn the language and to be able to share the gospel of Jesus with these pagan people, as well as to create a written language for them, of which they had none, and to translate the Bible into this new written language. As I already mentioned, their house was a hot spot for fever and ague. So one of the native chiefs, he knew this, the native people knew this, and one of the friendly chiefs led Patton on to this discovery and said to him, Missy, if you stay here, you will soon die. No Tanaman sleeps so low down as you do in this damp weather, or he too would die. We sleep on the high ground, and the trade wind keeps us. You must go and sleep on the hill, and there you will have better health. I at once resolved to remove my house to the higher ground at the earliest practical moment. Heavy though the undertaking would necessarily be, it seemed my only hope of being able to live on the island. My dear young wife, Mary Ann Robson, and I were landed on Tana on the 5th of November, 1858, in excellent health and full of all tender and holy hopes. On the 12th of February, 1859, she was confined of a son, For two days or so, both mother and son seemed to prosper, and our exiled island thrilled with joy. But the greatest of sorrows was treading hard upon that heels of joy. 
My darling wife's strength showed no signs of rallying. She had an attack of ague fever in a few days before her confinement. On the third or so thereafter, it returned, and attacking her every second day with increasing severity. Diarrhea ensued and symptoms of pneumonia with slight delirium at intervals. And then in a moment, altogether unexpectedly, she died on the 3rd of March. To crown my sorrows and complete my loneliness, the dear baby boy, whom we had named after her father, Peter Robert Robeson, was taken from me after one week's sickness on the 20th of March. Let those who have ever passed through any similar darkness as of midnight feel for me. As for all others, it would be more than vain to try to paint my sorrows. Stunned by that dreadful loss in entering upon his field of labor to which the Lord had himself so evidently led me, my reason seemed for a long time to almost give way. Ague and fever, too, laid a depressing and weakening hand upon me, continuously recurring and reaching oftentimes the very height of its worst burning stages. He just watched his wife die of this. But I was never altogether forsaken. The ever-merciful Lord sustained me, and to lay the precious dust of my beloved ones in the same quiet grave dug for them close by at the end of the house, in all of which last offices my own hands dug them, despite breaking heart. I built the grave round and round with coral blocks and covered the top with beautiful white coral, broken small as gravel, and that spot became my sacred and much frequented shrine. During all the following months and years when I labored on for the salvation of these savage islanders amidst difficulties, dangers, and deaths. Whensoever Tana turns to the Lord and is one for Christ, men and after days will find the memory of that spot still green, where with ceaseless, ceaseless prayers and tears I claimed the land for God in which I had buried my dead with faith and hope. But for Jesus, the fellowship he vouchsafed me there, I must have gone mad beside that lonely grave. God comforted them in his sickness. So Patton, he was gravely ill with sickness too and near death. Soon after his wife's death, two men from the mission of Anedom came, and a bishop and a reverend, and they both tried to plead with them to go back to Anedom for a needed rest and change. But Patton wouldn't do it. He was committed he was also fearful that the native people would not allow him on the island again if he left. So his love for the natives drove his decision to remain on that island all by himself. He managed to build a house at higher ground by God's grace and gradually recovered from his sickness. Haddon was to endure many other trials. He would be stricken with great sickness, as we mentioned, that brought him to death nearly 15 times. His life was often threatened by the Tanese. On one occasion, Patton wrote, One morning at daybreak, I found my house surrounded by armed men, and a chief intimated that they had assembled to take my life. Seeing that I was entirely in their hands, I knelt down and gave myself away, soul and body, to the Lord Jesus, for what seemed the last time on earth. Rising, I went out to them and began calmly talking about their unkind treatment of me and contrasting it with my conduct towards them. I also plainly showed them what would be the sad consequences if they carried out their cruel purpose. 
At last, some of the chiefs who had attended the worship rose and said, Our conduct has been bad, but now we will fight for you and kill all those that hate you. They were a very fickle people, wish-washy, back and forth. They would never keep true to their promises. They would always turn back to their wicked ways. But Padden, he held on firmly to God's promises in the midst of these trials. This is really the bulk of this point, what I want you to hear. He held firm to God's promises. On another life-threatening occasion, Patton wrote, A wild chief followed me for about four hours with loaded musket, and though often directed towards me, God restrained his hand. I spoke kindly, kindly to him and attended to my work as if he had not been there, fully persuaded that my God had placed me there and would protect me till my allotted task was finished. Looking up in unceasing prayer to our dear Lord Jesus, I left all in his hands and felt immortal till my work was done. Trials and hairbreadth escapes strengthened my face and seemed only to nerve me for more to follow. And they did tread swiftly upon each other's heels, meaning they came one right after the other again and again. The natives tried to attack him. Without that abiding consciousness of the presence and the power of my dear Lord and Savior, nothing else in all the world could have preserved me from losing my reason and perishing miserably. His words, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, became to me so real that it would not have startled me to behold him, as Stephen did, gazing down upon that scene. I felt his supporting power as St. Paul did when he cried, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. It is a sober truth, and it comes back to me sweetly after 20 years. Again, he's writing this later in life. I had my nearest and dearest glimpses of the face and smile of my blessed Lord in those dread moments when musket, club, or spear was being leveled at my life. Oh, the bliss of living and enduring as seeing him who is invisible. Now, I know that a lot of you listening to this are experiencing trials. And I, I, need, I mean not to minimize your trials right now. I'm sure a lot of people are struggling, and I do not know your case. I'm not going to pretend to try to know your case. But I doubt that any person listening right now is going through the trials that I'm reading of to the extent of which Patton went through. And yet he could cling to the promises of God and say, Lo, I am with you always. Will you not, always, will you not also have courage and persevere in serving Jesus during this time, and serving Jesus daily. And then in the midst of this season, you might even say, I had my nearest and dearest glimpses of the face and smile of my blessed Lord. By God's grace, Patton was beginning to have some influence of the people and guide them towards better ways than their savage one. However, they often just resolved, they just went back to their old ways and wicked practices, resisting the gospel. Patton had now been on the island for nearly three years and had endured much. He had, by sickness, come near death many times, like we said. His wife and son had died. The natives were often most unreceptive to any gospel message. At one time, all his possessions were stolen. They were later returned, but nonetheless, he had to endure a season with nothing to his name. He was constantly persecuted and threatened to be killed. He endured several attempts to kill him, 
Several of his native helpers died by either by attack or disease. Hurricanes greatly damaged his shelter and his church building he built, and many more trials. There were other missionaries at the same time on the islands all around him, and all of them died, either by attack or by disease. Haddon ended up being the sole survivor of the missionaries serving in those years to the islands north of Anedim. The native people's hatred of Jehovah God and Paddan would eventually drive him off the island of Tana. Paddan, he was a practical man. He did not believe in just staying there, you know, just in the face of death. In the face of certain death, he did not believe in that. He, he called it self-murder. And he said, life is God's great gift to be preserved for his uses, not thrown away. So in the midst of certain death at one time, he and his companion, his soul, and he means teacher, who was the only other person who survived with him, they narrowly escaped on the island of Tana and were able to summon a boat to take them back to Anidium to safety. It was now 1861, and Patton had served on Tana for four years. He had not seen one soul come to Christ on Tana though he had poured his heart out to the Tanese for four years, and it troubled him greatly to leave. He did not want to leave the island in such a state. Back at Aeneum, he desired to seek out a time to go back to Tana, where he could return and once again minister to the people there. But his fellow missionaries that had needed him, they pleaded with him to go to Australia and to preach the cause of the mission there and to raise funds, and also to regain his strength, for he was very frail and thin. He didn't want to do this. He was very very hesitant, but ultimately believed God's leading to follow this plan, though one day he desired to return to Tana. He left for Australia in 1861, and he received sharp criticism for doing that. People would come up to him and say, you should have stayed. You should have died with those people with honor. You shouldn't have left them. I mean, at that point, would you not just pack it up? I mean, would you not just quit? Would you not just go back to your Glasgow mission? But Patton didn't. He persevered. He sounded the missional trumpet throughout Australia and had great success in raising funds to support missionaries, as well as buy a boat for the mission's use. He did go back to Scotland during that time, not to go back to his mission, but traveling for five years for the cause of missions. In Scotland, during this time, many missionaries were raised up. He said that one out of every seven ministers left and to become missionaries during that time upon hearing his message. One out of every seven pastors and ministers became missionaries. His words inspired many to take up the cross of Jesus by preaching the gospel in the lost world of the New Hebrides. And in regards to his sufferings on Tana, he once remissed on this, and he could see the purpose of his sufferings. He said he often wondered on Tana why God was allowing so much suffering to come to him. But after seeing all the funds that were raised and the missionaries that were commissioned, he wrote, That work and all that may spring from it in time and eternity never could have been accomplished by me but for the first sufferings and then the story of my Tana enterprise. Haddon himself was not done serving on the foreign mission field. In 1864 in Scotland, he remarried again to a woman named Margaret Whitecrest. And together in 1866, Patton now being 42 years old, they set off to serve once again to the New Hebrides. 
They arrived in the Nidium in 1866, and Patton desired to find quick means to be able to go and serve on Tana once again. However, the mission agreed that right now, at the current time, it was not safe for anybody to go there as they would meet certain death. They asked him to be commissioned to a smaller island of Aniwa. You can see, can we go back to the map there on the last slide? There's a small island just basically within eyeshot of Tana there. He agreed to go. The island was just seven miles long and two miles wide with a few thousand people living on it. The Patton's arrived at Aniwa and set off to construct a house on the high ground and learn the language of the people. They struggled. They didn't know whether to stay there because he had a desire to go back to Tana. He didn't know if he should stay on Aniwa or try to find a spot and a time to go to Tana, but I suppose he fell in love with the Aniwans and he decided to stay, and they decided to be committed there permanently. They had all the same trials to endure on Aniwa as well. A new language, house to build, sickness, more. The Niwans, they were friendlier than the Tanese, but they were still very violent people at war with each other. They often tried to kill Patton again, both of them. Patton endured these trials again in hopes to see these people come to Jesus. They learned the new language, began the orphanages. They began orphanages that housed many children. They began a school. They had regular worship services. They also worked on developing the written language again and translating the Bible and hymns into that language they developed relationships with these people and began to have a great influence on them. And there was, there was one turning point during their ministry there, a big turning point for the natives. They had no good source of fresh water, and so they were really in need of better fresh water. So Patton decided to embark on the seemingly impossible task of digging a well on this little itty-bitty island. And the natives, they thought he was crazy. They had, they had no concept of a well, not, none. So they thought he was crazy and losing his mind. And they said, Missy, rain does not come from below, but falls from the sky. They had an absolutely no concept. And Patton himself, he was very nervous that even if he was able to hit water, it would be salt water. But after digging a 34-foot deep hole of 8-foot circumference and being mocked for doing so, he struck fresh water. He proclaimed to them that Jehovah God had given them, given them this gift and would give them the gift of living water too, and of Jesus, and pleaded with them to turn from their ways. One of the chiefs responded by saying, Something here in my heart tells me that Jehovah God does exist, the invisible one, whom we never heard of nor saw till the misty brought him to our knowledge. The coral has been removed and the land has been cleared, and lo, the water rises, invisible to this day, yet all the same, it was there, though our eyes were too weak. So I, your chief, do now firmly believe that when I die, when the bits of coral and the heaps of dust are removed, which now blind my old eyes, I shall then see the invisible Jehovah God with my soul, as Missy tells me, not less surely than I have seen the rain from the earth below. From this day, my people, I must worship the God who has opened for us the well, and who fills us with rain from below. The gods of Aniwa cannot hear, cannot help us like the god of Missy. 
Henceforth, I am a follower of Jehovah God. Let every man that thinks with me now go and fetch the idols of Aniwa, the gods which our fathers feared, and cast them down at Missy's feet. Let us burn and bury and destroy these things of wood and stone. And let us be taught by Missy how to serve the God who can hear, the Jehovah who gave us the well, and who will give us every other blessing. For he sent his son Jesus to die for us and bring us to heaven. This is what the Missy has been telling us every day since he has landed on Aniwa. We laughed at him, but now we believe in him. The Jehovah God has sent rain from heaven. Why should he not also send us his son from heaven? The natives turned from their ways. They increasingly showed kindness and love. They clothed themselves. The Sabbath day became the Lord's day. Warfare ceased. Dishonesty was condemned. Theft condemned. Many conversions proved to be genuine. And the Aniwans began to serve, love, and live for Jesus. Eventually, Patton wrote, Heathen worship was gradually extinguished. Every person on, hand, on, on Aniwa, without exception, became an avowed worshiper of Jehovah God. More than a few thousand people. I claimed Aniwa for Jesus, and by the grace of God, Aniwa now worships at the Savior's feet. Patton would serve on Aniwa for 15 years, and throughout the rest of his life, he was either serving there on the mission field or serving his cause by traveling around the world, sounding the trumpet of missions all around the world, or working on the Aniwan New Testament, of which he later completed. Many of the natives on Tana would also come to Christ. That island he first went to, many of the people on Tana would come to Christ. And Patton would live to see that happen. Patton lived a life of 82 years. And on the 28th of January, 1907, he died in Victoria, Australia. Parents, will you not give it your all to raise such a child as John G. Patton? Will you not devote prayer after prayer after prayer after prayer that God use your child, your children, such a way as this? Maybe start morning and evening family worships. Those of you who are called to missions, will you not be faithful to go? Will you not leave behind what you have here to give it all up for Jesus? No matter the cost. Will you claim a people for Jesus and give all to see them worship at the Savior's one day we will worship at the feet of Jesus with thousands of ones. And to all of us, will we not stand with courage, no matter the situation, now or in the future, and persevere in our daily lives for Jesus' sake? Is Jesus not worth standing in the face of fear and overcoming any obstacle for the glory of his name? Will you not hold on to the promises of God as Patton did, remembering that Jesus had said, Lo, I am with you always. Pray. Lord Jesus, we want to be more like this man was, or I do, Lord. I want to be more like John D. Patton, Lord, because he was so much like you. He was so much like Jesus, Lord, and he gave it all up for you, Lord, everything. He lost so much. Lord, I have lost hardly nothing, Lord, but Lord, I, I want to serve you 
I want to give my all for you, Lord. Would you help me to be faithful to the call of my life? Would you help each person here be faithful to the call of theirs? Would you help parents, Lord, guide their children in such a way, pray for their children in such a way as James and Janet did, Lord? Will you not help us all, Lord, to be courageous, Lord? There is reason to be fearful at times, perhaps, but Lord, we should stand in the space of fear and say, you are with us, we believe, Lord, you are with us today. Help us to remember this promise. Help us to cling to it as Patton did. Lord, and would you further your cause of the missions, Lord? Would you raise up from us many who would go and serve, Lord? And Lord, will we not claim many islands for your namesake, Lord? That's our desire. Many places. Would you help us go and serve with the people there and give them the gospel message that they might hear and know the dear and blessed Lord and see his smile one day, Lord, and we will all worship at his feet. This is our desire, Lord. Help it to be so. It is in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.